Thanks for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of our next episode titled Total Rewards for Employees and How They've Changed to receive that code for Sherm Credit. Now enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker here with... Good morning, everybody. Adam Compton. Hi, Vanessa. How are you today? Good, good. Good. We're excited to have a, a really fun topic today on virtual primary care and a lot of things that talk about the evolution and what's in, in store for employers and employees and moving forward. And we're elated to have uh, Dr. Eric Bricker with us. And we'd love to have uh, Dr. Bricker give us an intro in just a minute. But uh, ultimately, this topic is one that is going to incite a lot of uh, thought and action for employers because it's not just the action that helps support the employee, but the financial outcome for the employers over time. So, Dr. Bricker, would love to turn it to you for a, an intro of your background and state of the state as you would see it as we get launched into an overview of virtual primary care. Super. Well, listen, thank you so much, Vanessa and Adam, for having me. And thank you to all the listeners out there as well. And I am an internist, and I'll, I'll kind of give you my, my brief history. So um, I graduated from college in uh, 1998, pre-med, don't have any doctors in my family. And every doctor that I talked to said, whatever you do, don't become a doctor. Because this when you know, HMOs and managed care was huge. And they said, you know, insurance companies, government, ruining the practice of medicine. This is a long time ago, right? It's like, what, 24 <laughs> years ago. And I said, okay, I want to learn about that. So I can go kind of eyes wide open, see if I still want to be a doctor. And so I actually, uh, my, my first job out of college was at, at a hospital finance consulting firm. So I actually worked it back in the billing and business office of major medical centers, because believe it or not, doctors and hospitals don't know how to get paid. So they hire outside consultants to come in and show them how to do that. And I worked at projects at the Cleveland Clinic, and a Yale-associated hospital, University of Kansas, it's fantastic experience. Believe it or not, the only electronic payer at that time was Medicare. Like literally, it, we were doing hard copy bills to Blue Cross United, Cigna, and Aetna, and they were like remitting checks back. And this, oh, wow. you know, the internet had already been invented, and it was still all like hard copy bills sitting all over the business office. So, um, are you trying to say that the insurance industry was not as innovative potentially as I, others? I just, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, shoot, I was I was you know in my early twenties. I had no idea. You know, I was just learning and absorbing. But literally, there were like stacks and stacks of bills like underneath potted plants in the business office <laughs> that had not been sent out. And I'd be like, okay, in order for you to get paid, you actually have to send the bill. So we would like lift up the potted plants and pull out the bills and put them in envelopes. So anyway, it was um, it was fantastic experience. Learned a ton about the coding, uh, business process, et cetera, et cetera. Still wanted to go to medical school, so went to University of Illinois for medical school, and uh, wanted to be an internist because I liked I liked treating the whole person. I didn't have an infatuation with like the heart or the lungs. I kind of liked the whole person. So I'm um, originally from Maryland and had the opportunity to go to Johns Hopkins for my residency because I thought I wanted to be a policy wonk. So CMS is based in Baltimore. Uh, Hopkins has a big school of public health. And I'm like, okay, I'll be academic physician and do you know health services research, policy research, et cetera. And then I quickly realized that that just was not for me because it was just too slow. And I was just too impatient. 
So a colleague of mine who had become the EVP of finance for one of the largest hospital systems in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, he and I had stayed in touch. And we said, you know, between, you know, between him running the, the, bill, the billing office and being responsible for collecting about $3 billion a year in revenue, and, you know, what I knew from the bedside, we kind of knew how to navigate people through the healthcare system. So we couldn't, quote unquote, solve all of healthcare, but we could solve it one person at a time for their particular situation. And so we started uh, Compass Professional Health Service as a healthcare navigation company uh, with a third partner, bootstrapped the business and grew it from 2008 until 2018 um, to over 2,000 employer clients. We did it for about 1.8 million people nationwide. Um, you know, uh, Chili's Maggiano's restaurants, T-Mobile, Southwest Airlines, a whole bunch of mid-market employer clients. Almost every municipality in the DFW area was actually a, a, a customer of ours as well. And um, sold that business to Alight Solutions in 2018. And I then had an opportunity to be like, okay, well, I just saw that there was an opportunity to educate the employee uh, benefits professionals, whether they be brokers, consultants, or HR, um, or even... Um, people who work within the insurance industry itself, or even doctors themselves on how healthcare works. I created the A Healthcare Z uh, YouTube channel, which is healthcare finance educational videos. And between that and LinkedIn, I get about 100,000 views a month. So it's been really uh, widely viewed, um, much more than I would have ever imagined. And then I got asked uh, about a, a little less than a year ago to be the chief medical officer of a telemedicine company where I had the fortunate opportunity to work with a bunch of great people. And we actually built and launched virtual primary care. So I was actually able to see the creation of virtual primary care. They had been doing sort of traditional telemedicine and we added on virtual primary care and had begun piloting it with some of our clients. I have subsequently recently left that company. But what virtual primary care came out of was my experience sort of in a couple areas. So what I actually was working with a direct primary care practice in Dallas and direct primary care is where you like directly contract with a primary care physician for like a subscription. You pay X number of dollars a month, you get unlimited visits. And this was right before COVID. And then the pandemic hit and like every other doctor's office, they shut down. They went to 100% virtual visits. And you know, they still had to see their patients, et cetera, et cetera, but they did it all virtually. Now, when things with the pandemic sort of lightened up, guess what the patients said? They're like, this virtual stuff works out great. Can I like not come into the office anymore? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like 25, you know, Dallas traffic. It's like 25 to 45 minutes away. Can I just like stay at home or stay at, you know, wherever I am instead of having to come in? And they're like, yeah, for a lot of the stuff, you don't need to come in. And you didn't have to worry about billing because it was subscription-based, right? There was no insurance to bill because they were just paying the subscription. And so it worked out phenomenal. And then I had another experience actually with, um, there's a company in, you know, major US city, I won't name what it is, and they do primary care through house calls. So it's like direct primary care, except they don't have an office, they come to you. And guess what happened? They ended up only going to people's houses for 15% of the visits. So 85% mm. of the time, they could just have a virtual visit and they wouldn't have to go. And so I'm like, aha, because on-site and near-site clinics are so effective for controlling costs for employers. And in fact, I had the opportunity at a Brown and Brown event to speak alongside John Torinus, who wrote the company that solved healthcare, where they kept their company, Serograph, self-funded about 1,200 employees. They kept their healthcare cost trend flat for 10 years, and they wrote a book about how they did it. And I, when I would go and speak at these conferences with John, he would tell me really the secret was the on-site clinic. 
and their own doctor who was working for them. And they could do that because they were a manufacturing company with all their employees in one place in Wisconsin. So you can have a clinic. But guess what most employers in America are like? Their employees are spread out all over the place. So it's geographically impractical to have an on-site clinic because even a company with 500 people could be in like 22 states. And so this way, if you virtualize that on-site clinic, it gives you the best of both worlds where it gives you the access of virtual care, plus it gives you the direct contracting of the on-site uh, clinic where you get off the fee-for-service hamster wheel. So the, the, the opportunity to combine both the virtual visits and the fact that it's capitated and no longer fee-for-service is a tremendous opportunity that obviously I'm excited to talk about today. Absolutely excited. We can hear your passion and it is just an evolving thing that I, I keep digging into the the why for the employers, and maybe we can dive into a, a pretty tough area if you're ready for some high cost healthcare uh, discussion. But I think ultimately a lot of people think that they're going to only focus on these big dollar claims or specialty drugs because that's the only place that they can impact their program. But it's it's somewhat the adverse, right? I, I think we read a stat that for every thirteen dollars of cost savings uh, for every dollar of primary care spent, there's just a huge dollar opportunity for employers. So maybe we could touch on that, Dr. Bricker. Where What's the financial look like for both the employer on the aggregate and then on the employee rounding out both could be cost on co-pays or maybe even time saved through that opportunity of virtual primary care? Yeah. So, so thank you for asking that question because let's talk about the priority of quality and cost for a health plan. The central issue of cost and quality and access for a health plan. That and this is this we have to talk about how high cost claimants work in order for us to understand how virtual primary care fits into that. So obviously most of you are aware of the 550 rule, right? Where 5% of the claimants drive 50% of the healthcare costs. Or it's also the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the claimants drive 80% of the healthcare costs. And those claimants are typically in excess for the five percenters, those claimants are in excess of $100,000 for a year. And if you're doing the 80-20 rule, those 20% of claimants are typically greater than $25,000 for a year. So if you want to do anything about healthcare costs, you have to do something about your high-cost claimants. You can't nip around the edges at these other things. You have to strike at the root. Now, what's interesting about those high-cost claimants is that the majority of them actually showed and, and you can look at, I encourage every self-funded employer to look at your own claims for this. At Compass, we looked at the claims for hundreds of our self-funded employer clients for years we did this, and we saw this. And this has been corroborated by all the broker consultants that we worked with as well, where if you look at a high-cost claimant, the vast majority of the time, they the person had very few to no claims, and then all of a sudden, they blew up, and it came out of nowhere. And the reason for that is because high-cost claimants typically fall into three diagnostic categories of musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, and cancer. Now, if the group has a lot of millennial employees, then maybe one of those three is replaced by uh, labor and delivery and premature babies in the NICU. So like the cardiovascular might be replaced by that if the group tends to be younger. But if the group tends to be older, like a school system or a municipality, then musculoskeletal manufacturings tend to be older as well. Then musculoskeletal, cardiovascular, and cancer are the top three diagnostic categories. And what ends up happening is that the person has like very few to no claims and all of a sudden, wham, their um their their back pain is just so bad that they go to an orthopedist or a neurosurgeon and they have spine surgery for 150 grand or they have a heart attack or a stroke right they have quote we call it i feel fine syndrome i feel fine and then all of a sudden wham 
heart attack, stroke, $250,000 claim. Or I feel fine, then wham, cancer diagnosis. And the big cancer diagnoses are breast, colon, and lung. Those are the three big ones. And just like, I feel fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, they get some random scan for something else. And then they got this huge honking, you know, lung mass, you know, and maybe they quit smoking, you know, 20 years ago, but it doesn't matter because they had a 30 pack year history of smoking. So my point is, is that you cannot address high cost claimants after they have become high cost claimants. It's too late. They're already connected with the healthcare system, with the doctor, with the hospital. Do you think the HR department or the health insurance company or anybody else is going to be able to affect behavior change by either the doctor or the patient? No, absolutely not. You have to have a relationship with the person before they become a high cost claimant. Before. Okay, so fine. So how does primary care uh, accomplish that? Also, the other big statistic that you need to look at for your plan is what percentage of your employees have actually seen a primary care physician, and I do not count an OBGYN for a woman, okay? So we're talking family practice or internal medicine. Listen, OBGYNs are great. I have nothing against them. This is separate from the OBGYN, okay? What percentage of the employees have actually seen a primary care physician in the prior two years? And the answer is typically a third, or if you're lucky, less than half. So the reason why these high-cost claimants explode is because they had not been receiving any care beforehand. There used to be this old model of, okay, you've got this chronic disease, and it kind of goes you know, up and to the right slowly over time, and then it, you know, that is not how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> not so much. What, ha what happens is, is that it's low, and then wham, it's super high. So the point is, is that you have to have these people that historically had not had a primary care physician relationship seeing a primary care physician. Why do they not go to the primary care physician? Why? It's a pain. It's like an entire half-day episode in order to have a 10-minute visit with a primary care doctor. You got to take off work. You got to arrange childcare. You got to fight traffic. You got to park. You got to sit in a waiting room. You've got to sit in the exam room. And if you're lucky, the doctor maybe looks at you for five minutes, has, says, you know, you really need to lose some weight, and then you're done. That is a highly ineffective uh, primary care visit. And so one, you make it so that it's virtual so they don't have to make this a half-day escapade. What, that's one. Number two is you have to take them off the fee-for-service hamster wheel because primary care visits that only last 10 minutes do not work. In order to do effective primary care, it has to be longer. What does that have to do with fee-for-service? The primary care physician who's billing fee-for-service needs to grind 25 to 35 patients a day in order to make enough money to justify their practice. So you, they can't spend the time needed per patient. And so what ends up happening? They end up, you got, a, you got some chest issues, cardiology. You got heartburn, GI. You got sinus issues, ENT. And they just refer, refer, refer. In fact, the number of referrals over the past 20 years done by primary care physicians has skyrocketed. It didn't used to be that way. The primary care doctor actually used to take care of you because they had the time to take care of you. And now they do not because they're just churning fee-for-service visits. So the key is, is that if you take the primary care physician off a of fee-for-service, then they can actually take the time to spend half hour, 45 minutes with you to actually do real primary care. By doing that, it allows companies. Now, if you have concentrated employees at a manufacturing site, blah, 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 have an on-site clinic. Like, absolutely, that's great. It's going to cost you half a million to $750,000 to do that, right? So it's not a cheap investment. But if your employees are spread out and you're just not willing to write a half a million dollar check, then virtual primary care is a fantastic alternative to address that same primary care high cost claimant 
uh, issue that all benefit plans face. I think that goes to time savings for the employee. And I think about reduction of their costs, both out of their pocket, as well as that time spent is absolutely massive. And Vanessa, we talk, talk a lot about this and the, uh, the impact for how to minimize that for employees to get them engaged. And it just seems like there's that, that, that access that's just improved and costs less. It's probably going to promote medication adherence, uh, a lot of just really, really great things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely seeing the evolution, not just traditional bolt-on, as Mr. Brooker has explained, but also in the environment of how can we leverage this captive audience and introduce them or connect the dots to other solutions that may be, you know, barriers of unknowns today. So we're definitely seeing, you know, a big shift in the world of virtual care and this virtual primary care model being much greater than you'd even see in a traditional setting or have the exposure to because these individuals are also highly trained around a given group, their capabilities, their resources. So want to speak any more to that, Dr. Brecker? I think you bring up a really good point. And of course, one of the things that all employers and brokers and consultants obviously and immediately bring up and so it's it's a it's it's, it's something that we have to uh, you know absolutely address this is okay great when you have a virtual visit how in the world do you do a physical exam ah great question the short answer is you don't right <laughs> turns out <laughs> so like yeah you can do some stuff with 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 visualization where you know you can look at your skin and you can see the appearance of the person and all that and actually that's that's, that's very helpful for a lot of things however you can't listen to their heart. You can't listen to their lungs. You can't palpate their abdomen. So then that brings up the question of, okay, well, what are you losing when you lose the physical exam? And believe it or not, there's actually been studies and research on this as well. And so believe it or not, the American College of Physicians, so the um, the the professional society for uh, for internists, for adult uh, outpatient primary care physicians, actually recommends against in-person physical exams in asymptomatic people. Can you believe that? They have looked at the evidence themselves, and they said, look, if you feel fine, like... If you have a, a particular symptom, yeah, you know, maybe you need to go in. But if you're just going in for your quote unquote annual physical, like you don't need to do that. And then the American College of Family, pra American College of Family Practice actually similarly says that the true value in the quote unquote annual exam is to accomplish the screening checklist from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, because those are the screenings that have the evidence to show that they improve health. All of those screenings are not physical exam based. In fact, screening for quote unquote abnormal moles is not recommended at all. The reason is because it ends up getting false positives. You think the person has an abnormal mole, they get a biopsy, it's normal. You think the person has a murmur, it's totally normal. They, um, if, if you have, it is incredibly rare to have a pathologic heart murmur without any associated symptoms. So the point is, yeah, if you got symptoms, it's an issue. So what's in the US Preventive Services Task Force? It's things like depression screening, smoking screening, substance abuse screening. Okay, all that can be done virtually. Aha, then we get to labs, cholesterol, glucose for screening for diabetes, 
Okay, you can't do labs virtually. This is where the virtual primary care practices can actually directly order to a local lab. And believe it or not, there's over 4,000 Quest and LabCorp locations nationwide. There is a Quest in my Walmart. There's a Quest in my Walmart. You don't need an appointment. And so they get you, all you need to do, all you need to do is show your ID and your insurance card. Now, when you go for these outside services, that is going to hit the plan. So Quest and LabCorp, they're going to bill Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna. It's going to, now, if, it, if it's a screening cholesterol, the patient still has zero out-of-pocket costs. Adam, to your point, typically the employers will, will do this at a zero out-of-pocket cost for the virtual primary care visit. And if things are run through the benefit plan, you just go by the, the, the plan design where your preventive benefits are also covered at 100%. So you can still have it be zero cost for the person. They will need to go in for their blood work, but it's you're going to Walmart. You don't need an you don't need an appointment. You know you can pick up some diapers while you're there. Whatever, right? So there are floats your boat, right? And then and then also you can you you can do the referrals to the GI doc for the colonoscopies. You can do the uh, the orders to the imaging centers for the mammograms. So really, the now, is it perfect? Are there going to be situations where you'll need to do a physical exam? Yeah. And probably the biggest area is actually for respiratory symptoms, specifically asthma. So if the person has asthma, like I really need to listen to their lungs because there are some times where they're like, I'm horrible. And I listen to their lungs and like, hey, you sound pretty good. And then there are other times where they're like, yeah, I feel fine. And I listen to their lungs and their lungs sound horrible. So there we probably need to find you either an in-person primary care doc or we need to get you into a pulmonologist. But you shouldn't let that one situation for asthma negate the entire value of identifying and getting the two-thirds of the employees that had not seen a primary care physician. So I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, but believe me, there are tremendous opportunities for employers to increase the engagement because the real problem for those employer plans are those two-thirds of people people that have not seen the primary care doc and there's no data on them. There is no amount of AI or data analytics that can solve that problem because there is no data on those people. So anyway, I'll stop there. You, you raised a great point. And we, we saw this uh, about three weeks ago where my daughters, and luckily I'm not going to Walmart to buy diapers anymore, but my daughters needed blood tests and we had, we had somebody come to the house on a Saturday morning and within about 30 minutes, all their labs were done, efficient, to our plan was no cost. And I think that speaks to a question of Dr. Bricker of that benchmark or best practice where we'll often talk about those things that cost your health plan. Just make it nothing. Telemedicine, uh, don't limit chiropractic, all these things that don't cost your health plan, but drive the employee experience, make the cost as low as you can go. Uh, and then to drive that to what employers should be looking at when they look at their own health plan. Uh, you mentioned, I think 33% or a third of people, uh, they think, go to a primary care, what what do you want to see as the either virtual or primary care benchmark or best practice for employers? What's that magic number for you? I mean, at the end of the day, if you can get it above 50%, that is a huge improvement. And I will tell you that for it, it is, you have to use the, uh, you know, you have to use the boiling frog approach, okay? You got to do this stepwise over time. And that's what John Tornis did at Saragraph where they, they, and they actually used non-monetary incentives because they found that they worked the most. So if you went in and you got your physical exam, they gave you an extra day off. And they found that that was actually much more powerful than giving them money. The other thing too is, is then they increased it over time where they added then premium differential, 
where it would actually, so they did a carrot and a stick. So the carrot was the day off and then the stick was, okay, well, if you don't go in for your physical exam, then you're going to have to pay higher premiums. Uh, and so their, their, their compliance rates were north of 90%. I mean, it was literally almost 100% there because they made it free and easy. And at the end of the day, and they were self-funded and they did a, and they did a ton of education of the employees and be like, look, this is your health plan. I mean, to the extent that you take, you know, it's the goose that laid the golden egg to the extent that you take care of the goose, then it's going to keep laying golden eggs. Right. So we're not. And, and guess what? It worked. They didn't increase the <laughs> employee premium contribution. Right. So that at the end of the day, like and I've made a VA Healthcare Z video about this, too, is that, you know what I would love to see? I would love to see employer family coverage come back. I would love to see that. Not employee-only coverage. Not, okay, if you want to add your family members, it's going to cost you $600 a month out of your paycheck. Like, I would love to see it where you can make, like, saving money on the health plan, in my opinion, it's not about the money. It's about expanding coverage to those families. And wouldn't that be awesome if you actually had a job, like, back in the 80s, where your health insurance actually covered your family as well. Wouldn't you love to offer that to your customers? Wouldn't you love to be like, hey, at Brown & Brown, we can set it up so you can do family coverage. You would, you would attract some of the most amazing, talented employees on the planet if you could be like, oh yeah, it's like healthcare was back in the 80s. Yes, it would be, it would be a lot better than it is today. I think maybe a new fifth tier to add in here to uh, employee, spouse, children, family, and now wrap, wrap it up. Well, maybe you could. You could take a... Uh, just make it virtual primary care, and that's the only coverage you get. No, that's terrible. That's a bad example. <laughs> but I, but I think, I think what what the point is is that notice that this is not an HMO gatekeeper model. So I actually, this is my own personal opinion. People have other opinions, different ways. That's fine. This is not a hey, virtual first is mandatory. That is not what this is because people don't like not being given a choice. To say that in the positive, people like choices, right? And so you're going to get a bunch of angry employees if you're like, wait, you're going to force me to do this? Like, a lot of people don't like being told what to do. And so at the end of the day, if you can just make it free, guess what? People understand free. And I will add then what, you know, because at the same time, you have to address the regulatory issues. And of course, the majority of employers in America offer some sort of HSA compatible plan. And just know that the CARES Act coverage for telemedicine has been extended through 1231 of 22. So talk to your consultant, talk to your compliance people, but they recently passed that. So you can offer um, first dollar coverage for telemedicine services, even for an HSA plan, because they just recently, like within the last three weeks, passed in Congress the ability to do that by extending it through 1231 of 22. So what, is, what does the future look like, Dr. Bricker, with all the excitement that's happening here? What, what's the next step for virtual primary care? What's the next embedded technology that, we, that you see that employers can keep an eye out for? Yeah, so the, the great technology, so this is the thing about healthcare. Healthcare has a services problem. Healthcare is a services business. It's a, it's a people-on-people business, right? So this is where you use the technology to connect the people. So the key is the people. And so immediately, what people would say about virtual primary care is, is where are you going to get all these primary care physicians? Be like, look, we had primary care physicians banging down our door to work for us because, one, physicians do not like the fee-for-service. Doctors don't like seeing 35 patients a day. They don't do that because they like it. They don't like doing that. They wish they could spend 35, 45 minutes with a person. One, 
too. They don't like going into the clinic themselves. There are tons of mid-career doctors that are like, I can do this from home. A doctor who could actually work from home, that's awesome. That could they, It gives them the flexibility to do this anywhere in America. We had a process where we could set up people with licenses where the average number of state licenses that one of our doctors had was 10. So we had a doctor in New Hampshire that would see people in Texas and Florida and Illinois all the time. And so it gives people, what it does is it allows for, especially for rural employers and rural people, it gives people access to physicians that they never had access to before because they would have to drive or they would have to sell. Listen, there's a bell-shaped curve of distribution of ability for physicians. Yeah, maybe there was a doctor in your town. Listen, you know, God bless them. Maybe they weren't the best doctor in the world. Okay, and maybe having access to more choices for physicians would actually get them the right diagnosis and the right treatment that they couldn't get locally. And so, again, the thing that the technology does is actually being able to match the the, the medical problem of the person with the expertise of the physician. And historically, there was always the geographic component that was getting in the way. And so if you can overcome that geographic component, and a lot of it was because of the state licensure. Listen, I I grew up in Maryland. Like our family would go to Northern Virginia. (laughs) It was was literally 10 minutes away to Northern Virginia. If you live in the Kansas City area, you know, you go between Missouri and Kansas all the time, right? That's so stupid for the law to be different, like literally by driving 10 minutes, right? (laughs) You should be able to like see the the people in the other states. And so it gives you much better access to these physicians that you historically had not had access to. So to the extent that the technology can enable the matching to happen better, then that's really... if any, it, my, my message on the technology is, is anytime you are vetting an employee benefits or a healthcare technology, what you really should be asking yourself is, how does this technology enable the service better? Better, faster, cheaper, right? It's not complicated. All you're looking for is better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper. So if the technology can enable the service, not replace the service, if it can enable the service to be better, faster, cheaper, then that's the type of technology that you want to implement with clients. Well said, Dr. Brecker. We appreciate all of your passion, number one, and your time with us today. This is certainly a relevant and important topic, one that many are seeing tremendous success and growth and adoption rates within their population. And I think it's exciting to see where you know we've come, where we're going, and uh, certainly appreciate your time today educating our listeners and welcome right your uh, future participation alike so thanks again all and this is another episode of the benefits breakdown 